0: Okay, folks, welcome to the Hemang Pulse, the podcast that allows you to keep your fingers on the pulse of hematology wherever you are and whatever your interest in hematology is. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Thank you for being with me and with blood cancer today on this podcast since we launched at Hatch 2022. But today is an unprecedented thing we're doing with the Hemang Pulse. We're actually taping the Hemang Pulse podcast here live in muggy and warm Houston, where I'm sweating, but we are live at the Soho meeting, at the annual Soho meeting with no one else but Dr. Guillermo Garcia Minero, who is going to talk to us about MDS. So welcome to the HeMong Pulse. This is your first time on the podcast. I appreciate you Thanks. taking the time.
1: Thank you very much, Ali. It's
0: pretty busy here. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I know how tough it is to take time in a busy schedule, but really appreciate spending time with us. So some folks may not know you, that is not at their fault, but we're gonna tell them who you are, just a little bit about you and you know, what you do and, and how did you end up interested in MDS, myeloid malignancies in general?
1: So I'm a professor of um, medicine leukemia at MD Anderson. Apparently I've been there like 24 years now. You're a lifer, yeah, you know, you can't leave. So I'm, uh, I haven't changed. And I basically, you know, I trained in Philadelphia from 94 till 99, and then I'm originally from Spain, so I was thinking i go back to, to Spain where I from a nice place called Mallorca, and I had a nice opportunity. And then I got this phone call to go to MD Anderson with uh, Jacob Cantarjan. This is like 99. I thought, yeah, I'll go there one year,
0: You're not a <laughs> bit, and then I'll
1: go back home. I think I felt a little bit insecure going back home. Yeah, and then I stay one year, and now it's like 24 years. So I devoted my career to take care of patients with leukemia. And I also have a significant wet laboratory research effort. So I've been able to at the Anderson, this kind of like bed to bench kind of research. It's been
0: really great for me. Now, is it possible to interview anyone from Spain without asking about their soccer affiliation with Real Madrid or Barcelona? Okay. Yes, you can. Okay. So I, I I have to ask you, right? Yeah, it's
1: fun. I mean, otherwise my listeners will really not listen. All right. So I always like the underdog. Oh, uh-huh. so my team is called Mallorca. They suck. Mallorca. Please don't be offended. No, no. They always fun. like. They are always kind of surviving. Are we gonna go down? I like Atletico de Madrid, actually. Hey, but now that Messi
0: left Barcelona, Mallorca could actually have you know. <laughs> there's an opportunity there.
1: I don't think they can make it happen for some reason.
0: <laughs> So, this is really interesting. There's a lot of things happening. I want to start by asking you, um, I don't know how we can simplify the classification of MTS. And I ask that because over the past year, there has been some changes in classifications, some different classifications. For the clinician, is there a way where a clinical hematologist can understand the classification in a simplified manner?
1: Okay, so now I'm going to surprise you because I personally think that there has not really been a change. So, that is surprising. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. So, what happened is the World Health Organization periodically, actually, I don't know how frequently, they put out this blue book. They're very familiar with it. And then, you know, they adapt and change based on new molecular discoveries or what have. As they were putting the fifth edition, I believe uh, a small group out of this group came with a parallel proposal. But this is not really the WHO classification. So the WHO classification has made some changes, but I think the kind of main structure of this classification is not very dissimilar to what we had prior to this. So let me go in detail if we have this time. So we maintain the BLASTs up to 20%, so that has not really changed they have changed the name of the disease that I thought it was a mistake. Personally, hopefully they will change it. So now they call it myelodysplastic neoplasms, parentheses MDS. I see. And I, I understand why they want to emphasize the fact that MDS actually is a type of leukemia. But in a way, I think it's confusing because I believe actually MDS is also a syndromic disease, meaning like now we understand like in cheap CCUS that are part of the spectrum of MDS, you have cardiac alterations that are part of the MDS somehow. So I think, although calling it neoplasm, may basically pushing for this concept that this is type of malignancy, a cancer, is a good idea, but it's missing this part that these are actually really syndromes. And I think this could apply also to to leukemia. I think they may be afraid that people may not take it seriously unless they call it that. I think the history of this is that in the old days, this was considered a pre-leukemia. Like, is is this a disease? So indeed, actually, you could not transplant people in the old days because either the regulators or, you know, students, they will say, no, this is not a leukemia. It's not that type of cancer. Why would you go through this kind of things? Even if the prognosis is very important. But the bottom line is this new WHO classification has more emphasis on molecular alterations, whether you have received prior therapy or not. But I think the WHO itself has not really changed from the prior Uh, version in terms of the degree of dysplasia that you need to call it. I think the confusion comes a little bit from this ICC classification or proposal of classification where they're now creating a new entity where you have 10 to 20% blast. Now they call it MDS-AML with the idea that you could facilitate clinical trials. But I personally think this is a mistake because as an oncologist, you know, you could have the same mutation, let's say P53 or RAS in the esophagus or in the colon. Maybe you give the same type of chemotherapy. I have no idea how they treat it, but let's say four folks. But you don't change the name of the disease right. just before right. the same mutation, the same therapy. So I think this is creating some confusion. My understanding is that the WHO is looking into a sixth version, maybe trying to put some of these new concepts. But at the end of the day, in a way, you're right that the new molecular information is making this uh, complex in the sense that we understand better the biology and therefore the natural history of some of these diseases based on, let's say, you have a one mutation, yeah. prognosis is potentially good, you have a P53 potentially is bad, but there are some good tools that were just created like this IPSSM that I think are quite democratic, where people can go, put it, and then basically figure out.
0: Oh, I mean, is it still that you do this, uh, you know, refractory anemia with ring syndroblast? Uh, yes. Exactly. Uh, where, where, how,
1: where, where is that in the spectrum? Okay. So that's changing a little bit because what's happening is most of these patients with the ring syndroblastic anemia, around 90% of them have a particular mutation on this gene called sf 3 b one So now, for instance, WHO is calling about this MDS with sf 3 b one because in a way, if you have this mutation, right. then you have this disease. but My question to the group is, Okay, that's fine. But the reality is, how many countries actually have access to genomic data in real time, you know, beyond Europe and the United States? I don't know. Even in the United States, do all the practices do that? What is the time it takes you to get this kind of data? So I don't know if this is really the best way to call a phenotype based on molecular mutation. Now, we use this molecular data all the time, so don't get me wrong. But I think we're mixing, this is a complex word, we're mixing, we're confusing taxonomy. Right. That is, right. name of the disease, with actually praxis. That is, what do I do when you have that? When you talk to a lot of clinicians, hematologists
0: in the community, the way, the way they think about um, MDS in their mind is, you've got low-risk MDS and high-risk MDS. But if you try to dig deep into how they define it, you see a lot of variation, frankly for the, you know, for the non academician like yourself. But in their mind, they think about low-risk MDS, maybe there's a of anemia and the patient doesn't need transfusion. Um, high-risk, maybe I can't keep up with transfusion and, and things of that nature. Is, is, this, is this a reasonable classification
1: for clinicians? Low-risk, high-risk, and how do you define high-risk? Yes, risk? so I think this is correct. So even we divide the disease like this. So in the old days, you will use this FAB classification of what it does. Mm-hmm. Then we move to IPSS. And IPSS was straightforward because it will be low intermediate one will be lower risk disease. Intermediate two high will be a higher risk disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then it get more it got more complex with the IPSSR. The IPSSR compared to IPSS has a more complex cytogenetic classification. That's the problem. That on the IPSSR, you really need to go back to, well, it's on the phone. But even in the phone, is complex. You have to see right. what the cytogenetics are. And some of them are not intuitive. Like some of them are like a minus seven is intermediate instead of high risk. But that has been validated many times. So in that classification, low risk will be um, very low, low, some subsets of intermediate, high will be some subsets of intermediate, high, right? very high. But then when it gets very confusing and, you know, you're at the SOHO meeting, you probably heard Dr. Komroki talk about this, it's the IPSSM. Because we all thought IPSSM was going to be great because now you incorporate a lot of molecular data. This is phenomenal classification. But if people pay attention today, for instance, in in the symposium we had midday and then at the actual meeting, you saw some Uh, trials for quote-unquote low-risk disease where the patients have four or five mutations, that automatically by IPCSM is high-risk right. disease. Then Rami goes out to the K- conbrocky, goes out and says, oh, you know, we can wait on those patients. And say, yeah, it's because now we're calling high-risk, low-risk. So the bottom line to your question is, I think the practitioners in community do the right thing. You have a low percentage of BLAST with cytopenia and transmission dependency. That, in general, is a low-risk entity. It doesn't mean that it's a good prognosis entity, but it's a lower risk in the sense of lower rate of transformation longer survival maybe more an emphasis in terms of restoring hematopoiesis. although yeah. this is also yeah. changing and then you have the other group where they have excess blasts those patients have a higher rate of transformation to leukemia and they have a survival that is basically mad i think community doctors know what they do yeah but i i think i
0: i do think the definitions matter because You know, you want to compare apples to apples um, when you enroll clinical trials and and do all of this. And one of the studies that you've been instrumental in that was, you know, published and and led to an approval is a commands uh, study. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the trial just to understand a little bit who are the patients that were enrolled in it and the rationale behind it as well as the outcomes of the trial. But it illustrates the importance of agreeing on the definition.
1: Perfect. This is actually a fantastic question. So the COMMANDS trial is a study looking at a drug called Audience should be familiarized with it because it's already approved in the United States uh, second-line therapy for this group of patients you are mentioning with the ring sideroblastic anemia. But that first indication was for patients that had failed an ESA. well, patients don't fail therapy, but whatever. The therapy fails me. Exactly. So that they had been exposed to an ESA or were not candidates to an ESA. That study was important. It got the drug approved. We knew the drug was safe. We also saw a phenomenon that by being uh, patients that were less transfusion dependent, we call this transfusion burden. So those that had fewer transfusions, they did better with loose Patterson than those that had a lot of transfusions. So all this basically safety, the activity in second line, the transfusion burden made us believe that we should go frontline in a study and compare head-to-head loose versus a traditional growth factor like an ESA, like a polypene alpha. So that made sense. And
0: then you say in and the, and the experimental arm, did you see
1: ESA as well or no? This was okay. loose versus ESA. The patients were low risk MDS by IPCSR, So very low, low in some intermediates. transition dependent and this was very well defined. And um, they had not received prior ESA, or of course, no Brian uh, loose There is a cap to the uh, EPO level 500 because you were comparing against a uh, growth factor. So you want to make sure that, that you are fair. But it's actually open, and it was agnostic of rhinesthore anemia. So it was any patient with lower risk disease by like this definition. Mm-hmm. Then they were randomized one to one to lose Patterson versus supporting alpha. Okay. Now, the study is very interesting in that very well controlled, 178 patients in each arm, and the data is very clear. So the rate of response, and I will define it in a second, was double in loose patterns versus an ESA. And the response was defined by being transmission independent for 12 weeks and having an increase in hemoglobin level of 1.5 grams from baseline. So you have a dual, well, it's quite powerful. That's pretty good. Yeah. And it was like 60% versus 30%. So 60% for loose pattern set, 30% or so for the ESA, no doubt. As and the 30% is comfortable to what you normally expect. Yeah, exactly. And uh, actually, some studies may have been superior. Now, this data is very interesting. And not only that, the duration of response was significantly longer, actually a year longer with the loose pattern set versus the ESA, although that was not part of the primary endpoint. But for me, as a practicing physician, if you have a high rate of response and that response actually is maintained for a long period of time, it's very meaningful. But there's an issue that for some reason the study accrue 70% of the patients uh, RS positive. We don't understand that because the study was not restricted for selenium. The RS to the, RS patients. To the RS patients. My baby, because the label is for RS or for whatever reason that I'm not clear, we accrue in, in a non, there's no reason for right. that, a lot. And now the study, when you look at it as an intent to treat, is very clear. But when you look at different subsets, you have this question of the subset of RS-negative patients where the response rate is not very high, although the duration of response is higher or longer, as we'd say, with the loose set. So now there's a little bit of controversy in academic circles, I think, more than in the community, in terms of what do we do up front with an RS-negative patient? Do we do loose set? Or do we do a conventional growth factor? But this goes back to finish this long answer to your first question. That is, if you start looking at this data, this was presented by Ewe uh, Platz becker at the IHA meeting, and today a little bit at here at Soho. For instance, we see that there are some differences in terms of the molecular burden some of this subset of patients. So you did actually a study that is for quote-unquote low-risk disease, if you apply some of this PSSM data, we're just... A simple math to the others. Right. Having more than three mutations already puts you in a little bit worse category. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some patients like that. And then you start thinking, who are these kind of RS negative patients? So I think we have to learn a lot. We are excited about having a new indication for first line anemic patients. RS positive, no doubt about it. RS negative, I think some people are going to use one drug, the other, I think you could be okay doing. With, with people,
0: I mean, people might ask, you know, why not, I try the ESA, I may be lucky in those 30% of patients that respond, and I'll just, if you don't respond, I use the, you know, those few parts of, uh, after that. Is this a reasonable question, or do you think
1: the superiority... No, no. this is what people say, but some people. But I know your friends who well are with Dr. Jabour and Dr. Cantar. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that publicly, but now... Okay, how can I and I think you probably heard these guys saying... <laughs> Why would you go with your best drug and most expensive That's drug? Always- <laughs> it's the same. So if you look at the medalist trial, yeah. yeah, we got an indication, but the response rate is not very high. And actually, it's not that it's not very high, it was better than placebo, but it's not that long lasting. So here you have an, uh, uh, an approach that upfront gives you 60% response rate. It lasts like 122 weeks, medium. Why, why? would you do that? Why would you like now go for something that gives you thirty with like fifty, and then go second line with this drug that gives you thirty plus? It's inferior, actually. So I don't know if this is the right approach. If I'm gonna use a brand new drug, there's some economy issues. Saying okay, some of these ESAs are generic, and now you come with an expensive drug. But I think if you do the pharmacoeconomics here, and I actually asked the sponsor of this drug to actually do this, and if you look at the impact on reduction of transfusion time in office, this drug is given every three weeks, etc. It will be very interesting to see what is favored. And I personally, as a patient, will try to get a safe drug that is more effective from more than back-to-back. No, no, it's, it's a good point because
0: once you factor a transfusion, possibly hospitalization, the cost will actually increase for folks who have not used the drug yet, what type of side effects should they expect and the frequency of treatment and just
1: kind of like a plate. So, well, like- this drug, actually, I think it would be an ideal drug for community. I don't think this is a very complex drug. It's an injection every three weeks. Something that we need to emphasize is the dosing. So I'm glad that you brought it up because the FDA, I think, capped the dose at 1.75 milligrams per kilo. So there's an algorithm where you go one milligram, then 1.33, 1.75. And sometimes I see in my practice patients that are using it in the community and the physician see they're not familiar or forgot that you can actually increase the dose. So that's important. The drug in general, actually, the COMMANDS trial clearly showed that the toxicity profile is the same as ESA, the rate of transformation. You know, serious toxicities are the same. The reality is in the medalist trial, in the prior study, mm-hmm. we saw some patients that developed, and this was kind of random, uh, asthenia like they were very fatigued and sometimes this happened in my experience in patients that actually were responding to therapy interestingly we are not seeing that much of that phenomenon in commands but to the audience eventually you may see a patient that actually paradoxically may be responding to therapy that all of a sudden is very tired and the question is why is that happening is not could you reduce the dose or is just we're looking into ways to mitigate this it's not very frequent, it's actually infrequent. And it's not
0: dose-dependent, you can see it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But the question is, why is this happening in the context of someone responding? It's just sad, right? right? You have someone with a great response, and now, all of a sudden, very sporadic, very rare. But that's what you have to look. So the home messages is, is, don't forget about the dose escalation, like the titration up uh, schema. And that occasionally may see a patient that develops a little bit of asthenia. What you're mentioning makes sense. You could give a little bit of a break, give right. dose a little right. bit. Yeah, and, and I think
0: and I think one of the things hopefully you guys will look at in the next year is real world data and the and I'm a big believer in real world evidence, real world data, despite the criticism sometimes I get for that belief. But I think how the drug is going to be used in community broadly and and how folks are going to the type of side effects they see is gonna help define the next phase. Anything else? Per